0: Hey there, I'm Osman Faruqi and this is The Culture, a weekly show about the latest in the world of pop culture, arts, entertainment, and Joe Rogan. Before we get into today's episode, some news from me. This will be the last episode of The Culture for a while. The show's going on a bit of a break. I'll have more details about why and what's next at the end of today's episode. So over the past few weeks, the biggest story in culture, and in fact, probably one of the biggest stories in the world, has revolved around Joe Rogan and Spotify. Rogan, whose podcast The Joe Rogan Experience is listened to by over 10 million people, is no stranger to controversy. But after interviewing a doctor well-known for their anti-vaccination views last month, Rogan has now been accused of spreading misinformation, leading to big-name artists like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell removing their music from Spotify, the streaming platform that exclusively licenses and hosts Rogan's podcast. Since then, things have escalated. Over 100 episodes of Joe Rogan's show have been removed from Spotify, and artists and users are calling on the company to do better. The situation has sparked a number of complicated and thorny conversations around censorship, free speech, the nexus between capitalism and art, and the ethics of the streaming giants. To help unpack all of these questions and more, I'm very excited to welcome to this episode of The Culture, Dr. Matt Beard, the director of the Vincent Fairfax Fellowship at the Cranlana Center for Ethical Leadership. Matt, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, it was Nice to be here. You have a very fancy-sounding title, but basically for the last few years in various different jobs of mine, you've been my go-to philosophy and ethics guy. We used to work together at the ABC for a bit where you helped write a column that sort of broke down the pop culture ethical dilemmas, and it was a lot of fun. Do you want to put what you do in your own words? Yeah. You know, I studied philosophy for a really long
1: time. I studied ethics, and, and part of my professional role is to guide and advise senior leaders and big organizations around you know complex questions of leadership but sort of you know help them to be able to do it for themselves but the stuff that i'm really interested in is really pop culture it's marvel cinematic universe it's how we engage in binge culture it's online culture and there's a whole lot of touch points into people's lives where we can start to talk about questions of ethics and philosophy there so i work a lot thinking about the stuff that I'm actually interested in, which is why you and I, whenever we yarn, wind up talking for so long, because this stuff is real. Like All the things that we take for granted are actually entangled with the really complex political and philosophical questions that we face.
0: Yeah, it's always really fun and illuminating talking to you because I feel like I grapple with these questions without a kind of specific you know, ethical or philosophical framework, and then you help me realise that I'm not that far off the mark. And there's these different angles to to look at things. And, and the topic that we're going to talk about today, I feel like there's at least a dozen, if not more specific moral or ethical quandaries to, to unpack and explore. Oh, yeah. I
1: mean, this is in some ways like the perfect confluence of so many conversations that we've had around free speech around questions of cultural expression around the intersection of capitalism and profit with culture and our role as you know consumers and and what we can do like it all falls together in this
0: totally and one of the things that has left me a little bit unsatisfied with a lot of the pieces that I've read or a lot of the conversation I've seen on this topic of Joe Rogan and Spotify is the failure, I think, of so many even quite smart people to separate out all these issues. Yes, they overlap, but I think to really understand, you know, what's at the heart of this, it's worth taking these things step by step. So that's what we're going to try and do in this conversation. Um, it might end up being Joe Rogan length; it could be three and a half hours long. Who knows? Uh, but we'll try and keep it as succinct and interesting as possible. So, lot to get to, and and we will get to it all. But I think. It might be worth, just so everyone listening to this has the same kind of information basis for this kind of conversation, it's worth starting with, who Joe Rogan is and why he is someone who has been involved in so many controversies over the last decade or so. And his career is fascinating and full of a lot of very funny, very quirky coincidences. But Matt, I might start by asking you how familiar you were with Rogan and his content and his life before this recent drama erupted into the uh, media spotlight.
1: You know, I, I don't think it's possible to not be aware of Joe Rogan if you are you know, a follower of pop culture. But I wasn't a a consumer of his kind of content I am exhausted by the idea of a four-hour podcast to be (laughs) honest Um, and I think anyone who works in audio is a little bit exhausted by the prospect of that but I find him a really interesting example of something that I I guess I've wrestled with a little bit myself um, which is he's basically just this guy who is undertaking his own sort of intellectual and personal kind of exploration curiosity journey and he's just like doing it in public like this is the ultimate example of someone who just has their journal laid open for anyone to read and that's part of I think what his appeal is but it's also where a huge amount of the risks generate and a lot of where the the controversy has started from is that he doesn't claim to know anything he doesn't take any real responsibility for the way he frames questions or the people he wants to talk to about those ideas because effectively, like, whether he's kind of consciously doing this or not, he is basically, like, laying open his
0: mind for everyone to look into. Like, a, a reason why so many of the people I know who listen to Joe Rogan say they listen to him is because of this framing of him as someone who just asks questions questions. He he self describes himself as a moron that no one should take seriously, but he has a big audience and a profile, which means he can get on all sorts of famous people, interesting people, and just kind of thrash out the thorny issues. I've got to say, I haven't listened to a lot of Joe Rogan, the only full episode I've listened to, uh, maybe the least surprising thing about me is the, the long one he did with Kanye West. And I've seen, you know, excerpts and I've watched the odd video clip. And and to be honest, a large part of why I've avoided it, I think is less to do with any specific feelings I have towards Rogan. But the people that I know, or the people that I see online who talk the most about Joe Rogan seem like the worst kind of people. And so I've just thought, I don't really want to be part of this ecosystem. But It is incumbent upon those of us who like to comment and talk about culture to be across things, even if our initial instinct is to be a little bit, you know, maybe not that into it. So I've been going through it a fair bit. And I got to say, I still don't totally understand who's got three and a half to four hours to listen to these episodes. But I do understand why there is something appealing in the current culture of someone who doesn't really seem to care about the response to his guests and the questions that he asks and talks about things that are considered quote unquote taboo. But obviously that is, like you said, the the kind of pretext to how he got into this current situation and how he got himself into this dilemma. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for that. The other thing is that as much
1: as there is an inclination to put Rogan into a kind of box, you know, he's sometimes, you know, seen as an apologist for the alt-right and things like that. When you look at the range of people he has on the program, and, you know, there are examples that jump out and cause controversy, like, you know, Alex Jones or Marla Yiannopoulos or Gavin McGuinness, which lead to those kinds of associations. He's also had people on, like, David Wallace-Wells and Edward Snowden and Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor of ethical leadership, like people who don't fit into any particular narrative, but it's a strangely curated guest list because these are in some ways they're also people who inhabit the same kind of um, professional ecosystem as Rogan. They've got their own podcasts and they're trading Mm. audiences and doing Mm. all of those things and we need to know that there's a market operating behind this but it also just looks like what you would imagine someone's YouTube viewing to look like or their kind of smorgasbord of consumption to look like. Like some of it is You know, is quite erudite and insightful. Some of it's quite progressive. Some of it's very conservative. Some of it is racist. Some of it's offensive. Some of it's unethical. Like there is this just smorgasbord. But again, it's because he's made this claim that he is just some guy who is exploring all of this stuff, but he's not. He's a guy exploring that in front of 11 million people. And he's participating in the conversation with people who are sometimes experts and sometimes just people with opinions. But as an active participant, he's not just a journalist or an interviewer asking questions. He's also leading people down the road of answering those questions. Mm. And he's becoming someone that people look up to and people want to emulate his way of being. You know, he's this fierce advocate Of exercise, for example, and he's got all of these associations with different health products and supplements and things like that. Like he is also promoting and selling a way of being. And that makes his selection of guests and that makes the kind of conversation he has as much as he might feel in his heart, that he's just curious and neutral. It makes it a much more loaded thing.
0: Before we get to some of those guest selections, I I think it's worth stepping through a couple of parts of his CV almost, because you can see how there's enough in terms of what he's done in the past to help flesh out this narrative of himself as this average working class guy who just asks questions on behalf of you know middle working class America. So in the early 90s, his first sort of professional career when he was a late teen was in martial arts. He, he competed and won a bunch of martial arts uh, prizes. He worked as a Taekwondo instructor. He then had a bunch of different jobs driving limousines, selling newspapers, and maybe most interestingly, and we'll talk about Neil Young a lot more later on in the show, but he worked as a security guard at a Neil Young concert in boston he then moves to la gets a bunch of different acting gigs and that's when he starts to first i guess dabble in the media he has a pretty successful career on the stand-up comedy circuit but things go turbo for him when he gets poached to host fear factor the show where contestants do all sorts of crazy and insane challenges for money
2: i'm joe rogan and this is fear factor the stunts you're about to see were all designed and supervised by trained professionals They are extremely dangerous and should not be attempted by anyone, anywhere, anytime.
0: Another wacky coincidence, the person who approached him to host Fear Factor is a a former network exec called Jeffrey Zucker, who around the same time, funnily enough, was also the guy who came up with the idea for a show called The Apprentice and decided that Donald Trump would be a great presenter for that show. So that's how Rogan transitioned from martial arts, blue collar kind of work to the media ecosystem. And that was the grand work from which in 2009, he launches the Joe Rogan experience.
2: We are broadcasting live. This is uh, my office.
0: Hello, world. That's the podcast that we're talking about. It's If you've never listened to it, it's an interview-based podcast. Rogan chats to all sorts of different people, like you mentioned, Matt, from politics. Hello, Bernie. How are you, Joe?
2: Nice to meet you. Presidential campaign is up in full swing.
0: To philosophy. The philosophical method of belief testing called, say, the Socratic method. To comedy. This is like rollerblading. Everybody fucking rollerbladed, and then there was that one fucking homophobic joke, and then everybody acted like they never did it. <laughs> to music. How much weed can I actually smoke and still
1: play a teenage superstar on the Disney Channel?
0: <laughs> you know, he, he smokes weed with Elon Musk. So is that a joint? It's or is blood. it a cigar?
2: It's um, marijuana it's, it's inside weird. of uh, tobacco.
0: Okay. So it's like Posh Pot Tobacco yeah. pot. You never had that? Yeah. I think I tried one once.
2: Come on, man. You, <laughs> you probably can't because of stockholders, right? I mean, it's legal, right? It's totally legal.
0: Okay. It's a pretty varied experience, and it became one of the most popular podcasts in the world.
2: Hello, everybody. I have an announcement. The podcast is moving to Spotify. I
0: leading to whole Spotify whole in 2020, Spotify. signing this enormous deal, record-breaking deal, to have the exclusive right... To publish the Joe Rogan podcast on its platform for one hundred million dollars, and that was huge. Like you know, I work in podcasting. I remember when that deal was announced. But I think even if you didn't know a lot about the numbers and, and, and kind of economics of podcasting, that was something that really made you stand up and pay attention. And I think it was also really interesting because Joe Rogan, sure, on one hand, extremely popular. You could see why a company like Spotify that was trying to establish itself as a serious competitor in the realm of podcasting would want him on their platform exclusively. But he was also very controversial. And there seemed like there was going to be a time in which something like this happened where his record came back to get him or his approach to podcasting where he just asks questions was going to create some kind of conflict. Doesn't that seem kind of obvious?
1: Yeah, I think both parts of it seem obvious. It seems obvious that a company like Spotify would want to acquire the Joe Rogan experience. That that doesn't surprise me because, you know, for all of the presentation, like, you know, Spotify is at its heart. It's a tech company and it's a company that is about audiences. And so to acquire an audience of that size, it doesn't surprise me that that move was made. It also doesn't surprise me that it was seen as very controversial. What does surprise me a little bit is that, Spotify as an organisation have seemed a little bit blindsided by this. And I think there's been enough that we've seen over the last couple of years, you know, whether it's Netflix with the Dave Chappelle special or a range of other examples that meant that you, you probably could have seen something like this coming. And they, they, they just sent, seemed a little bit unprepared for it, which did surprise me. For me, it was surprising that they seemed underprepared. And I think it also... It surprised me that Spotify didn't do a little bit more work in terms of repurposing their organisation to be, I think, a little bit more prepared for a move into podcasting.
0: Yeah, and this had been building up for a while. So, you know, Rogan had been Involved in a number of controversies to do with things like climate science and issues around race and trans issues, but then last year, at the peak of the pandemic in the U.S., he he made a bunch of really controversial comments on on health issues. You know, he said that young, healthy people don't need to be vaccinated. If you're like
2: 21 years old and you say to me, "Should I get vaccinated?" I, I go, "No." If you're a healthy person and you're exercising all the time and
0: He defended taking ivermectin as a treatment when he was diagnosed with COVID.
2: It turns out I got COVID. So we immediately threw the kitchen sink at it. All kinds of meds, monoclonal antibodies, uh, ivermectin, z Pac.
0: That's that drug that's used as a horse dewormer that a lot of folk who don't really subscribe to what they call the mainstream approach to COVID health take as a way to self-medicate, essentially. So these things had been building for a while, and and he was criticized for it regularly, but they never reached a kind of crescendo. And then things really kicked off in, in January this year when he interviewed a very, very, very controversial doctor called Robert Malone, who... And this goes, I think, to your point, Matt, about this sort of, I guess, framing of Rogan as someone who just asks interesting questions of people. It is really important to clarify who those people are, what kinds of questions he asks, and what kinds of rebuttals he might put to them. Because by choosing to interview someone like Robert Malone, you're making a deliberate choice to air certain views about vaccines. We got a world in which the press is incentivized to push a storyline because they're all controlled by the same large funds. That Pfizer is, and so is tech. I don't know how we're going to get out of it, but it's got to start with us, all of us, finding common ground. I think, And then by not refuting them or putting the science up against him, you are implicitly telling your audience that this is something they should take seriously. So Malone says stuff like vaccines impact the fertility rates of women. Uh, he he overstated the rate of heart disease associated with the vaccine. And he also said that the United States right now was gripped by the kind of mass psychosis that we saw in Germany in the in the 30s under the Nazi <laughs> regime. So he put those things to air. He didn't refute them. That led to this open letter from 270 doctors and scientists.
2: Hundreds of doctors have written an open letter to Spotify about their most popular podcast host, Joe Rogan. They say they are fed up with the misinformation Rogan has been spreading about the pandemic.
0: This is really interesting because they weren't calling on Spotify to pull that podcast. They weren't even calling on Spotify to edit it or censor it. They just said that this is a reminder that Spotify is putting out ideas there that are against the mainstream scientific and medical consensus and that they should develop a misinformation policy to help govern what kinds of ideas they put out, what kinds of rebuttal or extra information they should uh, be including on those podcasts. Let's talk about that for a second. How do you feel about that, this call for misinformation labels, a, a kind of very free market of ideas response to this question of what sorts of things you should be talking about on podcasts?
1: Yeah, I think that's the point for me in some ways it, it makes complete and utter sense, especially coming from the medical scientific community to say, hey, if someone is going off script a little bit or stepping outside of their area of expertise and it's at risk of misleading people in matters of public health that are really concerning, you should warn them about that. You can't just post that up as information and expect the audience to do all of the heavy lifting themselves. You need to take some responsibility for that. But I think in some ways, the, the value of that letter sat outside of the specific request. It was in drawing attention to Spotify's role and its relationship to the Joe Rogan experience and Joe Rogan's role in spreading misinformation. I think that actually the, the request almost handed Spotify a fairly easy way out and a way out that Spotify by the way, has, has exercised before Spotify has a record of, handing its moral responsibility over to the user or handing it over to the market. So I remember a few years ago when there was some controversy over R. Kelly for very good reasons and him being on Spotify and people calling for boycotts and Michael Jackson experienced very similar things. Spotify's response was to create the functionality to block certain artists so that if you didn't want to hear R. Kelly's music, then you could block them. But they would continue to collect royalties every time someone played Ignition on their platform, you know? Like, Mm. so there was this way of saying, well, if you don't like it, then here's something that you can do about it, but we're staying out of it, we're staying neutral. And I think the misinformation label is serving the same purpose. It's a way of looking like doing something while simultaneously not doing very much at all. Because the people who are consuming a podcast like Joe Rogan and are engaging with that kind of material, they're not necessarily the kind who are going to go, oh, but there's a misinformation label on this, so I better go and do my homework, you know? Like, Mm. it's not, to me, not a particularly powerful or meaningful gesture. It does give the appearance of doing something, and it is a first step. Like, let's give Spotify credit. Like, this is a new environment. They are trying to take a step in a direction, potentially. But is it enough? And did that call for, you know, transparency around policies and adding misinformation labels, like... I'm not sure that it does much except allow, again, that responsibility to be shifted onto someone else and for the bigger conversation to be had, which is like what is – What is spotify's role what is the role of these quote unquote distributors in the information space like what responsibility do they have and what are some of the meaty questions around free speech like we just get to kick that can down the road because we get caught up on like governance and policies and these kinds of questions rather than wrestling with the
0: substantive ones we'll be back after a short break
2: you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer.
0: At this stage in the debate, no one is really calling for, or, or at least at this level of it, no one is saying Joe Rogan should be removed or he should be punished. It's basically just Spotify, you've got a responsibility to better alert your listeners to the fact that stuff being talked about might not be scientifically accurate. Things then change pretty quickly. Uh, An artist called Neil Young, he sees this open letter on NPR, the National Public Radio website, in the States and, and starts to get quite agitated.
1: The rock legend gave the streaming service an ultimatum demanding that his music be removed from the platform if Rogan's podcast remains on it because he says Rogan's podcast is, quote, spreading fake information about vaccines.
0: He puts out a call publicly and says, Spotify you need to choose between me or Joe Rogan you can't have my content and you can't have Joe Rogan's content up there simultaneously and there's a couple of different interesting theories why Neil young who if I'm really honest with you Matt I hadn't really thought about I don't think I'd really been in the news for a while decided to engage in this some of his fans have pointed out to the fact that he quite famously suffered from polio when he was a younger man and his personal experience with that disease perhaps has influenced him to care a lot about vaccinations and to care a lot about science and and public health. There's also a really interesting story that my producer Alex told me about where Neil Young himself, about 15 years ago, set up his own Digital streaming platform, a platform called Pono, where he was basically trying to suggest that higher quality streaming of music was a way out of this complicated battle between CDs and records and and online, uh, you know, at the time torrenting and and downloading of songs and again in another weird coincidence when he was struggling to make that company succeed he hit up Donald Trump for some funding so Neil Young has his own history when it comes to this question of digital online music but you know none of us i think really know what prompted this and if we just suspend you know cynicism or theorizing just say that he was upset by what Joe Rogan had said, wanted to side with these doctors and said Spotify either had to get rid of Joe Rogan or he was taking his music down. Spotify basically said, we're not going to get rid of Joe Rogan. Neil Young takes his music off. Then Joni Mitchell jumps on board.
1: The singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell has said she'll remove her music from the streaming service Spotify in a row about coronavirus misinformation on a podcast.
0: Joni Mitchell, a singer that I think a lot more people are familiar with. Certainly I, personally, more familiar with Joni Mitchell's discography than Neil Young's. And Joni Mitchell's a fellow Canadian as well. Maybe that's the connection there. There's then been a bit of a snowball effect you know Roxanne Gay the the writer from the state sort of podcast she announced that she was taking that podcast off Spotify really interesting one of the most interesting examples of this kind of growing boycott targeting Spotify I've seen is the science podcast, Science Versus, which is produced by a company called Gimlet, who is now owned by Spotify. They've put out a statement saying that they're effectively suspending their show, but the only new episodes they'll produce and release will be ones that debunk or fact-check scientific misinformation put out on the Joe Rogan podcast. So we've gone from this conversation being about Joe Rogan and Spotify should be better labelling the stuff that they're putting out there to now people saying, he really shouldn't be putting this content out there at all. And as long as he is, we won't be on that platform as well. Now, there's a lot to unpack in that sort of dichotomy. But tell me what you think about this sort of framing of the debate right now.
1: It's so interesting, isn't it? There's so many ways to take it. I mean, if we just go chronologically for some way of creating some <laughs> order out of this chaos and start with sort of... Neil Young and and Joni Mitchell. When, when that happened, I thought on the one hand, like this is really cool that you know some you know senior figures who were very established in the industry who were probably not particularly reliant on continued streaming for their kind of independent wealth at this point in time. Like although you know Neil Young said about sixty percent of his revenue comes from Spotify, so there was a financial hit that was taken, but by people who could probably afford to take a financial hit. I thought on the one hand that was a really cool way of showing some leadership, but of course it also sets a norm that not everyone is in a position to follow, right? Like not every artist who's uncomfortable with being associated with Joe Rogan being on the same platform is in a financial position to just walk away from those relationships because of the status and because of the role that Spotify occupies within the industry and within the market. So On the one hand, I think it was great in that it also put pressure on a number of other very prominent artists to get them to say, well, well, why aren't I doing the same thing? Should I be thinking about this if there are leading voices who are starting to speak up about this? And the other thing that was interesting about it and which does create a real challenge and a vicious cycle is that I think part of what was informing the decision is this idea that, well, there's only one language that Spotify are really gonna understand. And that's the language of audiences and listeners and money. Like that's the language that they're speaking. And so if I can take away the product and try to send a message there, then that might be the only thing that they understand. Of course, the question then becomes, who's really gonna cancel their Spotify subscription as a result of Neil Young or Joni Mitchell hooking Mm. their content. And some people did, but I think if you looked at the data, it's probably not an enormous amount. And what that does is sort of vindicate the language of, you know, commerce being the language that drives these decisions. So these are ultimately financial decisions. There's a really old case study that we talk about in like business ethics and leadership land and it's the case of the ford pinto and it's you know the ford pinto was this vehicle produced by ford that had this really dodgy safety feature which says that when it got hit from behind it had this bad habit of exploding so ford made this calculation to say well how much would it cost for us to recall all of these cars and fix them and I think it was about 150 million, for example. Yeah. And how much would it cost if we just paid out every insurance claim um, on people who died in accidents? And it turned out that was less. And wow. so they decided wow. not to recall. And it's a really prominent case study in just the, you know, the noxiousness of a corporate capitalistic language. But on a lower level, on a much lower level, because there aren't lives involved. There's something going on here that's like that, that's like, well, okay, let's factor in when we bring in a controversial um, voice, how much audience we're going to lose versus how much audience we're going to bring in versus how much advertising revenue we're going to bring in. And rather than this being a decision that is made on the basis of some kind of substantive view of, you know, what kind of an organization we want to be, what kind of a society we want to live in, we can just reduce this to a numbers game. And so... That's one of the concerns here, right, is that we so quickly turn these conversations around values into business conversations, and it really dilutes what's actually at stake.
0: So that I think you're right. I think that is the way that boardrooms and CEOs would be viewing this kind of thing. And I think the interesting thing about Neil Young and Joni Mitchell is that yeah, I don't think Spotify was as worried about the specific financial hit from people canceling subscriptions because they couldn't access Neil Young or Johnny Mitchell records on the platform, but more like the secondary and flow on impacts of that, that this is a huge international media story now. And it's raising questions about what Spotify stands for and its model and whether it believes in this idea that you can just promote whatever you want without consequence. There's another layer to this. I think you're you're really right to point out the fact that And I don't think, to credit them, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell aren't taking a stand and saying, if you're an artist that keeps their music on Spotify, you're as bad as Joe Rogan. I think they acknowledge that they're in a position to do that and they're very comfortable and they've got back catalogs and they're very, very well off. For so many younger musicians, I've been talking to all sorts of people who who are in bands or or solo artists uh, over the last couple of weeks about this, and a lot of them have been grappling with this question of, well am I as bad as Joe Rogan if I'm on the platform, but also I need to be on this platform because this is where 90% of people get their music from now. And they seem to be really torn by this question. And, And there's another layer to it as well, which is that not all artists even have the right to pull their music from that platform. So Crosby, Stills and Nash, these artists who've worked very closely with with Neil Young and performed with him, they put out a statement saying that they supported his stance, but they couldn't themselves remove the music. They asked their labels to do it. And I don't know if if you know this, Matt, but about 7% of Spotify is owned by Sony and Universal, two of the biggest record companies in the world. So they, it's not in their interests to pull music from artists off Spotify if the impact of that would be to devalue the company that they have a big chunk in. It's, it's you know we're trying to separate out these issues, and I'm sorry that I'm complicating them, but it just seems so hard to disentangle the financial imperative of artists, of labels, of Spotify from what is the right thing to do as an artist in this in this conversation. Yeah,
1: entanglement is the right word to use, and that's where we started this conversation. Right, is to say that you know. The way that we engage with with culture, with music, with art is entangled. It always has been. It's just that we don't always like to see how the sausage gets made because we just want a space that is just free of the political, right? Like sometimes we just want to engage in something that we can just enjoy and, and not have it be morally loaded. Um, and it really sucks that sometimes we can't do that. I think one of the things that i've always said in conversations like this is that the more that we as consumers um, or users of spotify the more that artists who are on spotify start to go well what should i do in response to this you know the more it frees spotify of responsibility think about it this way like if we take on the responsibility for example like uh, by analogy like let's say that there are inadequate mental health support being provided by a government, Mm. just hypothetically, right? What kind of crazy world would that be? Yeah, I I mean, can you imagine? Um, And so we said, well, what do we need to do um, for our community to take care of them, given that there is this absence of mental health support, or my employer doesn't provide that sort of You know, on the one hand, that's a really noble sentiment. It's recognizing a need and saying that where there is a need that I can fill, then I should take responsibility for that. On the other hand, it also gives a free pass to the person whose work it actually should be to do that. And that's what I think happens when we have all of these conversations around ethical consumption, whether it be about music, whether about it be about what kind of eggs are available in the supermarket, all those kinds of things. Like we suddenly start to take on this responsibility which arguably shouldn't first and foremost fall to us to, to have to be making these kinds of decisions. And so I am a bit concerned, and like I said before, you know, Spotify has a bit of a track record in handing these responsibilities over to the market. And I don't think that, firstly, I don't think conversations about values can be dictated by a market. And mm. secondly, I don't think it's necessarily our job to make those kinds of decisions. I think that there are some choices that just shouldn't be put to us because we're not in the best place to make those choices. Um, We shouldn't have to have our consumption of art be fraught or have to make these kinds of ethical trade offs. It it should be up to an organization that is profiting from them to make these kinds of calls. However, and this is the part where I've started to (laughs) change my tune a little bit, For as long as that responsibility is not being taken up, like we still have to act.
0: Yeah, we're still grappling with a decision to make, even if in an ideal world, it should be incumbent on the government to fund mental health or Spotify to figure out, you know, what's the values it stands for. As long as they don't do that, we're still faced with this question of what to do.
1: Exactly. And so I think there's that question of, you know, we need to act with an eye in two directions one eye on what's going on right now and another on what the future state looks like where we don't have to make these decisions anymore and i think that's why i'm really interested in the the decision of like wendy zuckerman and the team at science versus with gimlet and how they've chosen to respond to this i think that's quite an interesting and creative way of engaging and i think there are some podcasters and people who are closely involved with spotify who are trying to push things along with that longer scale, who aren't saying, I'm leaving the platform, but are saying, I'm not putting out any new content until you know things have improved. So Science Versus, for example, haven't just said, we wanna have some internal conversations. They've said, we're not satisfied with the existing misinformation policy that Spotify has put out. And it's worth noting that under the existing misinformation policy that Spotify has put out, that episode of the Joe Rogan experience that we're still talking about, like it's still on Spotify. Mm. So what that misinformation policy is doesn't seem to cover the issues that have gotten people particularly frustrated in this case. But it is, I think it's not the kind of thing where we want to come out and say there is an absolute responsibility one way or the other. But I think where I'm starting to change my tune is to say that as much as I might resent that this choice is mine when it shouldn't be, I still need to be thinking about, well, what's at stake for me in deciding whether to continue to pay my subscription to Spotify or not.
0: So yeah, what about that? Like, we've been talking about the responsibility of Spotify, the responsibility of artists who are on that platform. I mean, this podcast that we're recording now is going to be put on Spotify, It's going to be listened to by people on Spotify. So there's a question there for us. But then I also have a Spotify subscription. And you know, even before this controversy, I've felt mixed about that, given the way that Spotify itself notoriously underpays artists even relative to other streaming platforms. So maybe it's worth thinking about that kind of collectively when you have a company that I mean, I'm saying this out loud. I'm like, why do I pay money to this company where the the morals and the values of it are pretty dubious? It's pretty exploitative, and you know, one thing to point out here is it's not as it's the question isn't just does Spotify host Joe Rogan on its platform? The relationship between Spotify and Joe Rogan is much more explicit than that. Spotify paid Joe Rogan $100 million to bring his archive over to them to exclusively produce content for them. They push his podcasts into people's feeds. They have made him even more popular than he was before. So there is a very, you know, direct relationship between the two. And- one thing I've been thinking about is that where does Spotify get that money from to pay Joe Rogan to promote Joe Rogan? Well, they get it from exploiting and underpaying all the musicians on it. So listening to it, putting music on it, subscribing to it, we're all a little bit culpable here. And like I said, putting it all out there is making me think I really shouldn't be associated with it. But please tell me that you've got, you know, a more nuanced perspective on it, Matt.
1: So let's tease out the difference between like culpability, which is the word you use there, and complicity, because I think that in some ways, you know, we're all complicit in this really big uh, ecosystem that has, you know, questions around what's fair remuneration, that has, you know, issues of how much responsibility is this organization taking, as well as, you know, the, the simple question of like, what what does Spotify understand itself to be? you know, because it's made claims that it doesn't want to play a censoring role. But really what we're talking about here is not censorship, we're talking about curation, which is the very thing that Spotify does, you know, it curates music, it curates playlists, and yet claims not to be doing that. So I think there's a there's a role in which we're all kind of caught up in this. But there's also something that I've learned in a lot of different contexts and areas looking at an ethical issue or an ethical scandal when it's popped up, and suddenly everyone wants to talk about it is that Actually, it's 15 decisions earlier than the decision we're facing now where the real issue arises. And that Mm -hmm. means it's something we'll put a hold on to for next time, right? Like Spotify puts everyone in this difficult position because of the hugely central role it plays in the marketplace and in the entire creative and musical space right now. It's really hard to think about cancelling our Spotify subscription because we're not sure where we'd be able to consume content in the same way we're not. We're, it's just a very familiar thing for us. And, you know, that's the same thing with the stickiness of a Facebook or other, you know, tech products that just find their way quietly into our lives and then suddenly become really hard to get rid of because they just embed themselves in the kind of ecosystem in these really sticky ways. Mm. And I think that's the thing, right? Like when we see other products in the future and we see other companies in the future really quickly amalgamating a whole lot of whether it's data or whether it's um you know cultural capital or whether it's actual you know whether it's tv shows or movies or whatever it is we are putting a lot of stock in being able to continue to safely engage with that organization you know disney's another example in the entertainment industry like the more that they acquire (laughs) the harder it is to dissociate from them if suddenly we feel like there's an issue that arises. And mm. I think we're seeing this with more and more of these, these companies. Like the problem happens when these things become, you know, like, let me call it a term, like too big to cancel mm. um, because of the role that they, they play in our lives. And I think that's what we're really wrestling with is just, we all feel a bit stuck in this. I think even Joe Rogan feels stuck in this, to be
0: honest. We'll be back after this break. Sydney Dance Company explodes on stage with Mementa. This world premiere by acclaimed choreographer Raphael Bonicella is unmissable contemporary dance. Strictly limited season from the 28th of May to the 8th of June. Book now at sydneydancecompany.com.
2: For Sloan Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, really,
0: really, really, really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. <laughs>
2: I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen
0: wherever you get your podcasts. It is interesting to see how contrite he has been in some ways. Like, he... He's not taking the sort of stance of, you know, I should be allowed to say and do whatever I want. You're all trying to cancel me. He has actually apologized a bunch of times. He's done these very over the top Instagram videos. Uh, The most recent one, when footage emerged of him saying the N word on his podcast a bunch of times over the archives, he said he was really sorry. He worked with Spotify to remove over 100 episodes of his show for racially insensitive. And they didn't really go into details, but they said other insensitive comments. And I think that's a really interesting response to take because a lot of the people defending Rogan, the kind of people who come out and decry cancel culture, decry censorship at these times, are trying to Position him as this pin-up boy for the free speech movement, where he seems to be saying, "Hey, I've made mistakes. I'm really sorry. We'll take this stuff off. I'll be smarter. I'll work more carefully with scientists and 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 doctors," and that. Look, it, you know, again, maybe to be cynical, that could just be him being told by Spotify, "Hey, if you want to keep making this coin with us, you've got to play by the rules. You've you've kind of stretched the boundaries a little bit too far this time. Come back in line. Be controversial, but don't be too controversial. But it's certainly interesting to see him." play it that way rather than digging in and, and kind of holding that free speech line.
1: Yeah, I think it says something about him and, and speaks to his appeal, you know, the, he is just this guy that has been really curious and wants to understand and finds a certain appeal in a certain kind of person, a certain kind of conversation that is outside of the mainstream that is saying something that other people aren't and I think he's now sort of starting to recognize the limits of that, but I think he's also, he's going on the same kind of learning journey to use a a bit of a wanky term, like that, that our entire society has been around this conversation around free speech. Like Joe Rogan's the kind of guy who seems like he has felt like he can ask whatever question he's interested in. He's felt like he can share whatever view he wants because He's just a a guy sharing his thoughts and having conversations and the awesome power that he now holds because of by virtue of his following changes the game on that conversation in really significant ways. And I think that's like at the core of this. And the reason we keep having this conversation again and again is because we still haven't gotten our head around the relationship between these ideas around free speech around censorship around actually taking due care and what the consequences are for speech that is dangerous or uninformed or offensive like all of this stuff is still being eked out in a hundred different ways and i don't think that it helps us to shoehorn this and say well okay we now need to say that he's being sacrificed on the the altar of political correctness or whatever it is like There are, as we've said, there are so many different issues at play here that it's worth actually taking the time to explore it all and just to suspend judgment and not feel like we need to paint this with a particular brush or reach a particular view on who is the hero and who is the villain in this story. Because there's a lot of of responsibility
0: to be shared around, um, but there's also a lot of important stuff to be dug into. I want to ask you, a little bit about the free speech and censorship discussion a little bit more broadly. And I and I guess firstly I'll say I'm I'm not a sort of liberal free speech absolutist. I, you know there's this idea that the way that we debate and argue ideas, you know, ten reasons why the Nazis are great, but that's fine because you can just publish a story that says ten reasons why the Nazis are terrible, and we just thrash at those ideas. I think it is completely fine and good and healthy for organizations individuals publications whatever they are whatever channel it is to express their values and say we believe in these ideas and we stand by them and we don't believe in those ideas we just don't want to spend our time money resources and profile giving them an airing but at the same time particularly when it comes to questions around what should Spotify allow what should Facebook allow there is a part of me that becomes a little bit a little bit hesitant or, or a little bit worried and and I think about As we've been discussing, these organizations have value sets and motivations that aren't the same as people like you or me or the doctors or the scientists who want them to adopt certain rules. Their their goal is to kind of make money, not to necessarily adopt a particular set of values. And decisions that they might make that might feel good at the time to people like us might end up not being that great in the long term. I'm thinking, for example, during the pandemic, in Australia, and I think in the US as well, Facebook took the decision to delete events that were being used to organize protests against certain public health measures. And I don't support the kind of anti-vax protests as the anti-lockdown protests that we saw in Australia, we saw in the United States. But I also feel a little bit uncomfortable with saying, congratulations, Facebook, thank you so much for keeping us safe by deleting events that we have decided at this point in time think might be harmful. Like, where is our response when Facebook starts deleting Black Lives Matter rallies because people argue that they're dangerous to public health, that they incite hatred against police? Do you know what I mean? Mm.
1: Yeah, it's enormous. And now we're talking about, like, why this Joe Rogan cases it's really the thin edge of the wedge in terms of the rapid accumulation of power and influence by technology companies of all types and that's part of what interests me about the story is that there are there are no easy answers but one of the things that I think is worth picking up on is that I, I feel like we give these companies a little bit of a free pass when we take it as a given that they're just here to make money, you know, and, and it's probably descriptively true that that is the primary motivator for a lot of them is that they, their, their motivations are about making profit. but. Like they, they don't need to be. Hmm. And I think the conversation that we need to start to have and the conversation that I've tried to have with a, a bunch of different organisations um, over the last few years is, like, what would it mean if you were to wholeheartedly think about yourself as, like, a member of the kind of, you know, moral community that we're all a part of, you know? Like, if you just thought of yourself genuinely, not just legally, as a citizen in that kind of you know corporate citizenship way that that organizations kind of talk about but like genuinely if you thought about yourselves as a, like a champion of something that you cared about more than just what suited you or what was going to make you money at the time and we are seeing some organizations who are starting to do those kinds of things it's a slow process and there's a lot that needs to transform and in some ways I'm I'm nervous about advocating for that too much because There's there's not a lot of teeth in that, just asking people to be nicer, right? But these are also enterprises that are made up of people. And we've seen within the tech sector, we've seen walkouts at Google protesting defense contracts. We've seen organizations and, and their people rallying around them in ways that can be either transformative in the short term or influential in the long term. And I think that's got to be part of the conversation as well, is that we can't let organisations get away with a, well, we're just about money here as a starting point and then kind of say, well, how do we reel them in from here? Because it's that starting premise, the one that I really want to attack. It's the hardest one to attack, but I think it's where the most kind of change happens, especially when we're dealing with cultural organisations, right? Like if we entirely outsource art and music and storytelling, if, if they sit entirely within the hands of people who are only interested in those things as products, um, that can be monetized, you know, that's a huge chunk of our humanity that we've just sold. And so I'm, I'm really, I guess, hopeful that just like we see nonprofit arts organizations and just like we see state funded arts organizations genuinely concerned with questions of art and questions of culture that we might be able to get to some version of that with some of these privately owned organizations as well. But, you know, how we go about doing that, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be something that we need to do on a number
0: of different fronts. Hey, Matt, we didn't quite make it to Joe Rogan length, but we definitely could have. There, there's <laughs> so much more to discuss this, but thank you so much for your expertise and, and your thoughts on on all of this. It's, it's really fascinating, and I think you're right that this is not the first time we're going to talk about these questions. It certainly won't be the last, and I think in some ways, and I might be biased because I love talking about pop culture but I think in some ways they really go to the heart of what kind of society we do want to construct and live in so yeah thanks for talking to me about it.
1: No I, I pleasure, it's always a pleasure Oz and I'm apologising in advance to the audience who thought we might answer some of these questions <laughs> and kind of just kept making them more and more complicated as,
0: as we went I certainly have no idea what to do but you know that's life um, thanks Matt. Thank you That was my final episode of The Culture, and the last one for a while as the show goes on hiatus. I'm leaving Schwartz Media to work on other projects, but I just wanted to say that it's been a lot of fun and a great privilege to host this show. Thanks so much to the team at Schwartz for giving me the opportunity. In particular, our editor-in-chief, Eric Jensen, and my wonderful producers, Bez Zoder, Atticus Basto, and Rebecca Metcalf. A special shout out to Hermitude for their brilliant theme music. And thanks also to the amazing guests I've had on the show. It's really your thoughts and opinions that made hosting so fun and easy. And I learned so much. And finally, thanks to you, the listeners. I loved hearing your feedback about what you enjoyed and what you wanted more of. I hope you got something out of listening to the culture every week. I'm Osman Faruqi. See you next time.